Hello, it's Richard Gillis, and you're listening to the Unofficial Partner Podcast. Welcome. Lindsay Hooper is our guest this week. She is a sports journalist and broadcaster who, with Hayley McQueen and Kate Borsay, is one-third of the offside rule. A regular presenter on Sky Sports and for Premier League Productions. We talked to Lindsay at the Barnes offices in Old Street in London. As ever, you can hear Sean Singleton, the publisher of Unofficial Partner, in the recording. If this is your first time with us, feel free to dive into our archive via unofficialpartner.com where you can hear plenty of interviews with a wide range of guests from Charlie Sale, Rory Sutherland, Steve Martin, Ed Smith. There's a lot there. If you're a regular listener, it'd be great if you could rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This really helps other people find us. Thanks a lot. And here's Lindsay. Okay, Lindsay Hooper, welcome to East London. We're in the Barnes offices today, Sean. That's right. How do we know the barn? Uh, I used to consult from there, um, a luxury digital marketing agency. Very good. It's very posh, very uh, very uh, trendy. So, Lindsay, let's let's talk about the offside rule to begin with. How did that start? Where did that begin? Okay. Well, thanks very much for having me. By the way, we we started actually in in very grand beginnings because it was the three of us, myself, Kate Borsay, who worked for Sky News and Sky Sports at the time. Um, majority doing sport but she also is a news journalist as well um, and Hayley McQueen who's been a, a stable presenter now for, for many many years on on Sky Sports News and the, the three of us all worked at Sky Sports at the same time so we would come across each other in the makeup room and we would talk football and we'd always have a bit of a giggle and got on very well and I don't think it really dawned on us until that big occasion happened. If you rewind to about 2012, there was the Richard Keys yeah. and Andy Gray the sacking. They got they got dismissed from Sky. And it was over comments of, of women fundamentally maybe not knowing the offside rule, which really irked us because we thought, well, not only have you insulted all women uh, to say that, you know, they possibly couldn't understand and why are they involved in football, which is effectively what that message seemed to say. Um, but... You've also insulted us as colleagues. You know, we work here, we work in football, and in particular, Hayley, who was very uh, held in high esteem there and and certainly one of their flagship presenters. Then you, you think, wow, is that is that really the hidden feeling? And, and if that's what our colleagues are thinking, what are the audience thinking? Yet we really do know our stuff. You know, there's... And, and there are people... And I think that happens with, with men and women. There are people that blag it. There are people that maybe don't know as much. But actually... Most people that have got a real passion or, or certainly dedicate as much of their lives to something as, as any of us have usually know quite a bit about it. Yeah. And we knew that just from those conversations we'd had in the makeup room. And so I had come from a, in particular, had come from a radio background. So I was a little bit ahead of the game in terms of knowing about podcasts because back then they weren't very popular and they were still starting out. I think only Football Ramble really was going at that time. And I just said, look, you know, these guys are doing this and they're doing really well. But, you know, why don't we have all women and why don't we have an opinion for, an, for a change and not just a script that we're reading from, but something where we really get to show and demonstrate that we, we know what we're talking about. So that is where it was born from. And what was the, the, the that Keys, Richard Keyes, Andy Gray moment? That was sort of that talk to, or it seemed to from the outside, seemed, seemed to talk to a culture question within Sky. Was that... What was it like? Because it seemed to be the, the most 
laddish, mm. blokish environment ever. My my experience there wasn't great. I'm not going to deny it. Um, but I think it has changed a lot since I left for the better. And of course, Haley's still there. And I know I know from just speaking to her how brilliant it is now in, in, on many levels. And it needed to be. Because when I was there, there was just too much emphasis on looks for the women and, and not enough about knowledge. And it, and it pretty much, for me, came down to the fact that I was up for a job and someone who knew nothing about football got it. And I was taught, you know, told, can I see a stylist? Is there any way I could work on my hair? But rather than working on my hair or my look, it, they thought they'd work on the other person's knowledge, which they didn't have. So I, that was the final straw for me, really, because I knew that I didn't have that typical what I would say typical back then was a Sky Sports News look but I guess I was always hopeful that eventually it would move on and that I and I really did with my boss in particular at the time I really wanted to wow him with my knowledge of football and I remember on a few occasions him grilling me about lower league teams and me knowing the answers and him being like oh well you know and it, and it would be oh she knows her stuff it was, maybe we put her out with the wind in your hair I remember that saying and you know um and might I add, I know this is a podcast because some people might be listening and think, my God, she might be the back end of a bus. It's just like, I'm not that bad. Like, you know, I'm okay. I, I, I don't think I'm ugly, but... <laughs> Barney Francis got a lot of credit for that in terms of the changing... I mean, that was a big decision at the time to get rid of Keys and Grey, wasn't it? That was a huge decision. And... And a lot of people really loved them, you know, and that would have been quite a decision to make. But I think it started what has become now uh, the advent of, of women in football. Um, I still think there are issues. I still think that everyone's trying to do the right thing and it's brilliant. And I'm seeing so many more faces and voices. And I think that's great. But in terms of some of the colleagues that I looked up to, because we all have that, don't we, when we come into a business that we have role models. And some of the people that I looked up to, I just don't see enough of now. And I'm like, well, what, what is that? Like, is that like who, Claire Tomlinson? She is still yeah. working, but she was a pioneer. Sue Thurl, um, coming down a little bit in, in age, probably uh, Jackie Oatley, people like that. Mm. Um, and Jack, Jackie's just joined Sky, but it, and that's great to see. But I don't feel like I see enough of those people that really pave the way for me to be able to do what I do. Um, and I think that might be an age thing. Mm. And that really concerns me because I think that's the next thing that needs addressing because it's great getting in as many entry level. And I'm, and I'm loving that. You know, at the Offside Rule, we often reach out and try and get new people in mm. from universities, give them that first experience. And some of them have gone on to do brilliantly and really well. Um, but I feel like my responsibility now is turning to the people that are older than me. Um, and probably a bit of that is selfish as well, safeguarding my own future, because you worry as well. You know, the government are telling us you've got to work to, is it 70 probably I'll be? Or maybe even older. Yeah. Um, what would be the, what, what's the, what do you see now? Because we're, we're in this, you know, obviously come off the back of the Women's World Cup and, the, and everyone, you know, the, lots of people have launched sort of women-focused media pro pro products you know from the telegraph and you know you can sort of see that there is something happening and then in the sponsorship market there's always an overblown reaction to that they've all piled on and said that well you know it's great now but what's still to be done do you think well i think from a marketing point of view they're starting to get it right i mean you go to stamford bridge now and you will see a huge 
photo in the club shop of Frank Kirby, equal to what you would have last season seen of Eden Hazard. You know, it's, it's huge, absolutely brilliant. And you you walk through the the tube stations and the walk to the the football station, and you see posters and you see images. But I would say that they are one of a very few clubs that have managed to do that and are putting more resources into marketing. Um, but, you know, why would we talk about marketing when there are still teams out there that aren't even fully professional? You know, that's where the money needs to go first because we need our players to have an, an equal playing field. And that isn't an equal paying field. <laughs> that's just the the ability to be able to do this as a full-time job, you know. And, the, and that still isn't the case up and down the country. It's getting so much better. We have a professional league. We've seen leagues set up around Europe and around the world where now our players can also go abroad. You know, we've seen big moves for Lucy Bronze to Lyon and we've seen Tony Duggan who went out to Barcelona now at Atletico Madrid. Um, there are those opportunities, but I think it, it starts with the, the fact that the sport is in a good place. But then the next thing is that you have to then get that message out to an audience and that does come with backing. It comes with sponsors coming on board and and also wanting wanting to be in it for part of the journey. You know, we look at, at working with brands all the time on, on our podcast and, and what we want. You know, our figures are very good, but they're not as good as the Totally Football Show or as the Football Ramble. But what we're wanting is someone who will work with us because they want to grow with us and that we've been there from the beginning, you know, mm. especially in women's football. And... We want people who want to be part of that. It's not just a sponsor thing. It's not just here's some money and our brand gets all of this off the back of it and you get this off the back of it. I think it's now about relationships and people working together. And I think that's what needs to happen in football too. Mm. It needs to be when these brands come on board that they're in for the long term. And I think Continental Tires were very good because they're still there. They're still doing it. SSE, they they put their name to the Women's FA Cup and are still there. So those are the sorts of brands that I think people need to follow. It's no good coming in on the whim off the back of a really successful World Cup and thinking, oh, well, this is the time to put our brand to it. But it's like anything that sort of gathers a bit of momentum and grows so quickly because it has done is that you do also have your frauds so you have your people and I'm not talking about brands per se but I'm talking about you know maybe those people that are putting their head above the parapet now and sniffing out maybe this is a good time to become a women's football agent or you know whatever yeah. it is yeah. um you're, you're gonna get that I think from success um so it's about having the responsible people in those really high up positions as well that can really guide people and clubs, not only just players, but clubs. The, the PFA and, and all sorts, I think there's a huge responsibility now as it does grow. The FA, the FA is, is mm. you know, their role. I mean, I, my next door neighbour is Kelly Simmons, who you might... Oh, she's brilliant, yeah. She's done heroic yeah. work, not because she's just my neighbour, but <laughs> a shout out. She's done <laughs> you trying work. to get an extension. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on, Kelly, let us have that new kitchen. Um, the... Um, that, but there are people there behind the scenes that have been toiling away for years and years and years. Yeah. It just feels like the, it, the World Cup, it is a cliche to say, but it does feel like a moment where there was a sort of time and you, and you saw people genuinely talking about women's football yeah. in a way that, that it wasn't a sort of patronising pat on the head. Oh, they're playing, look at them, isn't it, isn't it great? Which always has, you know, there is always going to be a group of football fans mm. who have that mentality. 
But do you think that that was a change? Yeah, I, it was hard for me to judge because I was out there. So I was yeah. with the England team and I was very much in that little bit of a bubble with them because I was working directly for FIFA. So I wasn't seen as other press, if you like. I was seen as their press. We were in their hotels and I had a very different role. Um, and apart from checking on social media and things, I didn't know what the pickup was. I saw different different announcements in terms of viewing figures which were incredible so I thought well something's happening but I think the re- the real moment it hit home to me was speaking to my family and my parents because my mum and dad have watched men's football for as long as I know that's probably where it comes from but well, it certainly comes from my granddad but you know I, I know that they're avid watchers and actually I don't mind naming and shaming that my mum has always said to me she didn't like me playing football and she didn't really like women's football you know that was but she could never tell me why yeah. it was just that and she started talking to me about it she'd watched three four different matches and was talking about it the way she talked to me about it when she watches Match of the Day. And I thought that's hit a new level because if that's my own mum who I've known all my life and I've known her attitude, then that's that's incredible. But not only that, I was talking to friends who had overheard conversations in pubs and bars and on the street and walking to the tube station. And I think that was it. It, it appealed to the popular masses. Now, I think that was a little bit of timing with these, with these things, it's always like that. You know, it was maybe a slightly quieter summer, which meant that it had also got terrestrial coverage and you mm. needed those things to come together to actually show, you know what? It is pretty good. It's mm. a pretty good standard and you are going to be entertained. There are stories. And more importantly, I think the thing that everybody got sold on is that you you hear the stories of the players and you like them and you want them to do well and you really invest in them. And I did. I mean, I knew quite a lot of the older Lionesses and I'd known some of their struggles and their tales and then you've got the younger ones coming through and I I didn't know them as well. Your likes of Georgia Stanway and Leah Williamson and Mary Earps and all these other ones that I hadn't actually spoken to as much. And I really fell for them. I was like, you know, you guys deserve this as well and and I wondered if there would be a little bit of a I want to say entitlement Mm -hmm. because I think we maybe judge the younger generations and think that they have that in them a little bit and Mm -hmm. um and there wasn't at all there was nothing but gratitude and feeling really blessed to be there um and wanting to create some new role models for the future and to actually make a difference you can tell that it isn't just about playing football for them they actually want to really pass it on to the the next generation's coming through. Are they, um, could you see them, or, uh, you know, that generation of, there was a new cast of characters and you can sort of see people, as you say, latching onto them, developing relationships with them. We were always told for years and years and years that women's sport generally, and women's football particularly, um, it's not on telly because it's not popular. And then it's on telly and it becomes popular. There was that sort of peculiar... Um, it's such a difficult one because, uh, you know what, Men's football probably did cross, well, it it absolutely did because of the money involved, that transition onto paywall television, which is what I would call it. So, but I think it's one of very few things that has. Mm. Um, I think it's a different argument. What we're actually Mm. talking about is wealth and class and who's got enough money to be able to pay for these things. Mm. And who puts that as the priority in in their life at the moment? Because... You know, we could get into a whole other debate about the pressures on different people as, as a, an average family, 2.4, with, 
what you've got going on in your life and where does the Sky Sports subscription come in that anymore or mm-hmm. the BT Sport or the Freeview or the whatever because you know Amazon all these different things that are coming through and there was a calculation done ahead of this new season this is just if you're a Premier League or men's football fan um, and want to watch maybe a bit of Serie A and La Liga as well and the amount of subscriptions you would need to watch potentially or even your own team see I'm a Wolves fan if I wanted to watch all of Wolves matches you know in Europe at home, in the cup matches, how many things have I got to be subscribed to? And I think we're putting a big burden on people, you know, just the average family. And remember that football was just a working class sport. That's where it came from. Um, and now you've got to be pretty rich. You've got to be pretty rich to go as a as a season ticket holder to some of the huge clubs in the Premier League. And you've got to be pretty rich to watch it all at home now. So... You're asking someone to choose maybe between a gym membership and staying healthy and watching sport, or in some cases between the weekly shop, uh, how much they're going to yeah. spend it. It's a, it's a difficult one. I, I I think just maybe it's been priced out. And I think the terrestrial offering, if you put anything on terrestrial, it will get a better audience than you putting it behind a pay paywall. That's yeah. that's it, isn't it? it? Yeah, and I suppose you know again we're we're consuming things in different ways and we're it, it's I, I watch a lot of the World Cup on clips you know on on in various places in the little 30 second highlight moments and I'm wondering if that replaces I mean match of the days and um, having this conversation with some people in the sort of meat sports media rights market and they're saying well actually highlights programs are really really hard to sell other than match of the day match of the day you know still um, and it's but it's probably an outlier it's probably not typical of highlight sport. And actually what we're seeing is that there's a premium in live, if it, the live moment still, in certain categories. But then everything else is going to be then sort of just cut and diced and we're going to be consuming it via um, screens mm-hmm. and phones. From your, you're in an interesting position because you're working both on... The sort of television end, but you also work with for the Premier League and and essentially the IMG. Is that yeah, right? yeah? I do work for them. Yeah. What's how does that work? Just take us through that. What's their role? Well, they if you imagine that the fight that happens in this country for rights to the Premier League, um, as we've seen in recent years, has been between BT Sport and Sky Sports. What what Premier League productions do is they they provide the rights holders around the rest of the world with content. So they provide them with the live matches. So whoever buys in, whether they're in Q... I'm not... Actually, can I pick up on that one? Because Cuba don't have it. They're the one that don't. There's only three countries that don't. <laughs> Why did I pick that one? Whether they're in Cambodia or... Definitely not Cuba. Definitely not Cuba. Whether they're in Australia, whether they're in Asia, whether they're in the Middle East, whoever it is that's bought those rights, um, then get... A lot of our footage so they, as well as the live matches they will have content around that so they have many different shows fan fan zone is one of them which is a fan orientated program um they have premier league today which sometimes has journos on you know the, there is a huge offering and that that content goes out and i guess for for pretty much most of the world they might afford the rights but they might not be able to afford the content making around it so there it is ready made so often if you're in a hotel room you know people will often see me in bizarre places around the world 
Um, my family, since I left Central News in, in Birmingham, which was the local TV station, still worry about me, you know, what are you doing? Where are you? Are you okay? Um, because they just don't ever get to see it. So from that point of view, it, you really wish that that offering was available in the UK as well. But that's what they do. And that's who I work for. Um, and if you look at world feeds, it's a little bit like a tournament when you've got a World Cup or a Euros, you'll have someone who does the world feed distribution. You've got to look at them as a bit like that because they distribute all the off-the-pitch interviews. And But then the rights holders will always get their their chance to do to do a lot as so well. That, is that Stocky Park? Yes, which everyone's now heard of because know, of VAR. So everyone's like, now I know where you work. When you said Stockley Park, everyone keeps talking about Stockley, it. I, I grew up a couple of miles from Stockley Park and the idea that Stockley Park has become the foot centre of the sort of VAR football debate mm. is it everywhere now it's just so bizarre it's yeah. like a what's it like that that's like a factory town though isn't it Stockley, Stockley Park without I yeah mean, it's I like I'd take away the glamour there but well it is it's a big industrial estate where yeah. but a glamorous one yes, um, and, and there's lots of other different units on there but they have a huge building with really great studios out near Heathrow Um a savvy move, I think, for the future because they're going to have Crossrail going through there. So as soon as that's up and running, there's going to be a direct link in and out. Yeah, yeah. Um, straight from my mum's the, house, the valley of my mum's house. Yeah, <laughs> Crossrail, where's she? Crossrail, yeah, absolutely, boom, in, uh, in Uxbridge. So oh, there you go. That's yeah, it. Yeah, it's about the only thing going for Uxbridge. Let what take us back then. What sort of kid were you? Where Where did you grow up? I grew up near Dudley in the Black Country. Um, my parents are black country through and through. They lived in next villages and met each other at, at a local pub where I used to go when I was only just old enough. Um, so a very close-knit family. That black country lifestyle, the family tend to all be within around about a mile or so radius. Everyone knows a lot about everybody. And it's a lovely community and everyone is just superb you know I love going home and chatting to people they're they're brilliant brilliant people well you said you were saying it's like the black country you're talking like they're in the sort of 17th century they (laughs) they are to a degree they are they are I mean they are in the sense that it is like going back in time when I go home you know not that much has moved on things do things do move on but not at the rate that they move on in cities and in places like London and Manchester and Bristol and places like that so um it's just a lovely little village atmosphere and I and I was an only child as well so I very much felt like I grew up with you know in cotton wool a little bit because I you know I got ferried everywhere to go and play so many different sports I was just a sports fanatic and I didn't even think twice about the fact that you know my dad was always after a factory job where he'd been, you know, working for hours and hours and physically, you know, labour, he was like holding machinery and then I'd be asking him to run me here, there and everywhere. And he just did. And I had a brilliant relationship with my nan and granddad. And my granddad used to be a scout at Wolves and was a very good footballer. But, you know, the war came, one of those. Um, And it was just infectious. And and I did not realise how how great I had it when it came to football because since and all my colleagues that I've met you know in in recent years I didn't realize I got to play football at school not many people not many female colleagues of mine did when they were at school they didn't have that offering my my school absolutely offered that at high school 
um, my teacher actually played for Wolverhampton Wanderers ladies. So I, I knew about women's football for a long time. Yeah. And my nan on my other side that wasn't even really, you wouldn't have said that she was that sporty. She was my older grandma. Every Saturday without doubt, match of the day on. You know, it was just what we were brought up with. And I didn't think I was unusual until I left and went to university and talked about football a lot with people. And people would be like, oh, wow, you know, you really like football and you talk about it quite a lot. Um, and you went to Loughborough? I went to Loughborough, yeah. Is that, was that a sports-related decision or was that just Yes, I was a runner. Um, I used to do cross-country running. Um, I was that crazy kid that wanted to be out there in all sorts of weather, in rain and mud and running through streams and, yeah, uphills, downhills. Um, I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> You're the, second, you're the second person on the podcast, well, at least. Charlie Sale is someone, he's also an ex-Loughborough yeah. um, student. And he was, and obviously, because that was about the time Seb Coe, he, he, was, he was there with Seb Coe. Yeah. And that was when Loughborough became this sort of big sporting university. Yes, that would have been... I guess in... it must have been quite local to you anyway, would it? I mean, you're not my own, anyway. Well, this is the only child thing. So my mum and dad gave me a radius of 100 miles and yeah. I took the 100, you know, like pretty much. I think it was about... 80 or something miles from where I lived um, so I just took as much as I could but I, I actually raced at Loughborough when I was 14 in in just a I think it was schools race or, of some sort or county race um, and I loved it and that was it I'd pinned all my hopes I want to go here this is the sporting mecca uh, you know this is where I belong I want to come here but the the irony being that the moment I stepped foot in there my sport sort of took a back seat because they had these amazing media facilities and I'd already discovered hospital radio back in Dudley and I'd already been doing quite a lot of uh, volunteering and community radio. And so I walked straight in there and that was my new passion, if you like. So I, I sort of look back on Loughborough and a, a lot of people say it makes or breaks you as a sports person. And I think I left, I, I went there as one thing and left as something else. What, what happened after Loughborough then? So from there to... Central Television, what was that? No, Central Television came a little bit later. I was, um, so I had a radio career in music radio when I was younger, um, just because I don't think there were many female voices. Um, I just had a really good run. <laughs> you know, everyone talks about luck in this industry and I just had it when it came to my early career in radio because I was broadcasting on, on the local student radio station at Loughborough. Um, a commercial station heard me because it happened to be on the the local RSL license, which meant that everyone in the local area could hear it. And they were after someone for their breakfast show and they called up the university. Who is this person? You know, she's sounding pretty good. Could we get her on our breakfast show? So I was there like roving reporter. And then in my second year, I ended up having my own show, um, which was like a late night love show, which my mother's maiden name is Love. So I wanted to change it to Lindsay Love, but then thought I sounded a bit too porn star-esque. So... Um, and then I went... So was, that, was that a bit of sort of Simon Bates, Steve Bright in the afternoon type? So, yeah, and music. And I went to Trent FM in Nottingham and worked on weekends there. And then my first proper commercial job was I got weekend breakfast on a station called Harrowwood FM. And the first guy to give me my, my proper break was a, a gentleman called Paul Green. And he was the program controller at the time. And I think I badgered him with demos. And he was just like, just, let's just give her something. Um... <laughs> And it went from there, really. I did Virgin Megastores Radio, which doesn't exist anymore, but they used to, on Tottenham Court Road, have this huge yeah, store yeah. and a glass studio. Yeah. And I used to present in there and made some friends for life when I did that job. It was brilliant. 
Um, I used to be Alan Partridge-esque and go to Norwich <laughs> once a week for a radio show. Um, but I loved it. And radio was my love. That was that was the thing that I got sucked into the media industry with because I just loved radio as a format. Um, and then the irony being from when we were talking at the very beginning about my experience with Sky and things was that one of my, my bosses just said, look, you're, you're not the back end of a bus. You are, yo. Why have you thought about television? And radio was going through a lot of, of changes at that time with you know when they network all the shows and a lot of local mm. local stations were losing breakfast shows and drive time shows and i could see the writing on the wall really that you you got to be already a celebrity really to get on mm. um there are the odd exceptions of course and and i just always the whole point of going to loughborough was that i wanted to do sports journalism i did sport in english that was what i wanted to do and i thought i've lost sight of that a little bit i got a bit whipped up in the going to the Brit Awards and doing those sorts of jobs. Um, and then I thought, well, that was the best time to do it. I was in my early 20s. Time now to just choose and go for something. And so really I focused on sport from about 23, 24. Bring us forward to the future of the offside rule. Gathering pace. It is gathering pace. It is. Um, I'm excited by it because of that creative freedom that I think any broadcaster just will take, you know, grab their both hands because... The moment that you get the chance to set the agenda, know what you're talking about and have that freedom and also do it with people that you really love um, is exciting. So we are expanding in the sense that we are no longer just going to have the offside rule once a week. We're going to have a WSL edition for the new season. So we are launching a women's one. And and we still do our exclusives, which are sit-downs with, with people from the world of football, players, managers, former players and managers, um, and even commentators. We had Martin Tyler on one. So we try and and plug that gap and put our, our spin on it, which is different. You know, I would even say, you know, for our podcast now, we've entered more into a lifestyle sort of genre. We're now on Jack Radio as well, which is on work? DAB. I was ask you about that. So they just break the show up. So they just loved the podcast and they were just so on point with where we are uh, you know the probably the probably are different collaborations that you look at and you think well how would I make that work but this was just an easy one it was you know they have a, a big emphasis on female female musicians and their playlist is all female um, and us being all female talking about football it was a really easy fit and they just said look you know there's nothing really we want you to do any different we'll just break it up and put it out as a show but the business part of me was like, well, you can't have it on um, Listen Again because then obviously the podcast becomes redundant. So they have it live, like as live, if you like, um, airing on a Friday night. Um, and then they repeat it on the Saturday morning, but they can't release it as a Listen Again or a podcast and our podcast still exists. And who, who is the audience for it, do you think? Our audience is it's, it's odd because it's probably still slightly male skewed. But we probably have the highest female share of any of the football podcasts. So I think we were about 40%, 40 to 45 women. Um, but still our majority is men. And I really like that. I really like it because I think what, what it's saying is that I'm not, I am a feminist, but I'm not a feminist who wants to bang a drum and exclude men. You know, that's not what it's about. It's about us working together and just about everybody having equal opportunities. And so if people are listening to us and liking what we've got to say, I don't think it really matters what gender you are. Um, but it's interesting because we always get asked about that split. And I'm just yeah. like, well, actually, anyone who enjoys it, you know, age age range, we're probably looking at 
anywhere between I think we're a little bit older than the the youth of youth ones that like sort of 25 to 45 is tends to be our audience um but they're very engaging you know that that's the one thing is that we get a lot of engagement um there's a lot of different shows that go out and maybe people don't hear from their audience but we we do and and when people find us they let us know as well which is really nice <laughs> and, and wolves yeah but i've had years and years of like you're you're well, talking to me at the height so, you know, we are you know we had we know about pain you're, yeah you're talking to me at the height i mean i i beam from ear to ear when i talk about wolves and actually probably disgracefully so like you listen back to many of the podcasts I didn't really used to talk about them that much because you know we did the double drop it was always doom and gloom and um I never hid the fact that I was one but you know since the the recent ascendancy um I talk about them quite a bit um it's the best Wolves team that I've seen in my lifetime and I didn't think that day was going to come I've, I've got a very good friend who is Austrian she spent most of her time working in Germany. She's a huge Bayern Munich fan and a Germany national team fan. So th- th- those are her two things. And she'd seen her team win the Champions League and she'd seen her team win the World Cup in her lifetime. And I just was like, I'm never going to get this. Um, and then England went and got to the semi-finals of a World Cup, um, both the men and women. And... And then Wolves went on this great run in their debut season back in the Premier League and finished seventh. And now we're playing European football, which I've not seen at Molyneux for my life. So, um, Great manager as well. Really, really good manager. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He's very good. I do worry that someone is going to swoop in mm. at some point for him. Yeah, but. yeah. Again, Spurs fans will share you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's probably you that will swoop in once Maurizio's gone, yeah? <laughs> okay, well, listen... Thanks very much for your time. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and uh, will everyone tune into the Offside Rule? Yeah, please do. Please do. Hi, this is Paul Hawksby, and unofficial partner is my dirty little secret. Apart from the butt plug, obviously. Obviously.